Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 160 of the Gamers Lounge. I am I am really excited to get this episode released. Um, so we're just past the Thanksgiving holiday. We are in that magical week where Bill is taking some vacation. Um, actually, uh, for my birthday this year, taking some time off and then ending this, uh, week when this gets released with, uh, visit to PAX Unplugged. So I'm going to be at PAX Unplugged throughout the weekend and up in Philadelphia. And if you happen to be listening to this, um, you know, in line with that weekend and you're at PAX Unplugged, Go on to Facebook. Uh, I'll check that at least a couple of times during the weekend. And if not that, you know, try, find a way to get a hold of me. Uh, email me, bill at gamerslounge.coda.net. Um, let me know you're there. Uh, I definitely would love to meet up with the, uh, the listener and, you know, get some games in and whatnot. So let me tell you a little bit about this episode. Uh, I am super excited. Uh, those who have listened to the Gamers Lounge for a while know that I and the variety of gaming groups that I am involved in are huge fans of Stonemeyer games. And for the first time, hopefully not the last, I, I suspect not the last, I was able to carve out time with Jamie Stegmeyer owner of Stonemeyer Games and designer of um, over half of the games they currently have published. So any of the recent hotness you've heard about, Wingspan, the Wingspan, the European Bird Edition, um, the hotness around Tapestry, uh, that incredible game Scythe, Euphoria, which you've heard us on the Gamers Launch talk about, uh, Between Two Cities, My Little Scythe, Scythe for, you know, little kids. Um Viticulture, which the most recent episode, we talked about Viticulture of the Vineyard. These are all Stonemaier games, and this is the guy that was involved in both publishing them and designing several of them. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I absolutely enjoyed this interview. Jamie is a fantastic person and a great guy to talk to. So let's go ahead and jump in. Please do enjoy. Hello, hello. Today, I am joined by, um, well, in my own personal fanboyism, I would say one of the luminaries in the gaming hobby, uh, Jamie Stegmeyer. How are you, Jamie? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think there are many people that are more luminous than I am, but uh, but uh, yeah, thank you for saying that. I, I, I would, maybe, maybe on an equal level, but I gotta say, ever since the early days of reading your Kickstarter, your blogs about Kickstarter, I have been absolutely a fan of things that you produce right down to, I think there's only two games that you've made that aren't in my house right now. So, <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. it's quite a collection then. Yeah. 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 So big fan. So, um, so thank you, Jamie, for, for coming on. I, Let's start out with this for for the listener of the Gamers Lounge who may not be as up to date on you, Jamie Stegmeyer, as much as knowing you know when we talk about Euphoria or when we talk about Tapestry or something. How did you get started in the gaming industry? Like, how did what pulled you into going? 
one day, hey, I think I want to make some games for a living. Well, I, I didn't know at first that it would be for a living, but um, the the main catalyst for me was seeing a few board games on Kickstarter in like 2010, 2011 uh, do do. What, what appeared to be fairly well at the time. Um, and all my life, as one of my little creative hobbies, I, I had been designing board games for fun. And so I thought, okay, well, I have this uh, entrepreneurial spirit. I love the idea of Kickstarter. I love the idea of connecting with um, individuals who share a pat- my, my passion for a specific thing. And, uh, and I love designing games. So I thought, okay, I'll combine them all and I'll, I'll try to, um, to launch a Kickstarter campaign. And that, began, that became the original Viticulture Kickstarter campaign in 2012. It didn't become a career choice until uh, close to 2014, after I had run another Kickstarter and I was seeing that there was uh, a level of sustainability to to uh, to keep it going as as more of a full time career. I, now I have to admit, I came to Viticulture late. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've I've picked it up recently, actually, but it has been fun. I had I had heard the stories right from the beginning about the uh, the infamous uh, Kickstarter success video of uh, yeah. Jamie and team trying to uh, toast with wine to every one of the backers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that became a tradition. Yeah, we because uh, Viticulture was wine themed, obviously, so we. We tried to, to toast. I don't know if it was to every backer or if I think you had to maybe pay a dollar for it or something like that in, in the original campaign. It eventually became something that you had to pay a dollar for. But it, as the company grew and as those campaigns grew, it became untenable to continue because I don't even drink that much in the first place. But drinking that much wine or even <laughs> drinking four or five bottles of beer in the span of two hours while trying to toast everyone, those videos are still out there someday and I cannot watch them because they <laughs> They got out of hand quickly. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. So, uh, tell me about uh, if you can think back. What um, like where did the inspiration for Viticulture come from? Because because Viticulture, like I think the majority of your games until recently is your design, right? Yes. Yeah. Right now, I think about a little over half of our games are my design, and uh, Viticulture was definitely the first of them. And really, I was just. Um, I was I was learning more about the industry and the hobby and the community at that time, and I, I saw an opening for games that um, that didn't have uh, uh, speculative speculative themes like science fiction, fantasy. As much as I love science fiction, fantasy, mm-hmm. I thought that I might be able to open up a game to a wider audience if it if they didn't have those themes. And so I wanted to enter the hobby or enter the industry with uh, a game without those themes. And so I thought of, you know, there, there are farming games that I knew that I love, like Agricola. And I thought, okay, I'll try to take this this idea of running a vineyard, which is kind of romanticized sometimes in movies and books, and uh, and use that to create a board game. Well, I and I can only applaud you because not only is it a great game, but we, um, you know, right into the theme of running a vineyard. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I had viticulture at the vineyard where we had a local vineyard um, uh, host us as nine of us rolled out and, you know, got two good games of viticulture going around. Uh, I don't know. I, I want to say the tastings probably equated to four full glasses of wine after the uh, the heavy-handed tastings were poured. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, it fits really well. And, and even with that, it was, it was intriguing to me as somebody who organizes gaming events and does a lot of gaming, that there were people that were coming in at the, at the winery, um, coming down to the room where we were all hanging out, and uh-huh. just sort of the, the, the joy and shock of, 
Oh my God! They make a they make a board game about making wine. <laughs> yeah, where can we buy this thing? And we're like, do you know where your local game store is? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, so how much of the expansions for Viticulture were things that you saw? Like, like I mean. I've seen Viticulture, the Essential Edition, right? Which kind of pulled in a lot of the expansions that were created to be really part of the core game now. How much of that was just your evolution as a game designer, sort of seeing the things and saying, I think I should have done this the first time? And how much of it was genuinely new ideas that popped up that you just kind of thought, this is, this is cool, let's roll it back and sort of add to the game? I think it was it heavily leaned on the latter, but as I as I developed as a board game designer, um, I think that ended up impacting the final product. Uh, basically, I, re- I remember a conversation that I had with my my business partner Alan when we were coming we were driving back from Indianapolis to St. Louis from Gen Con in the summer of 2013. Viticulture had come out a few months before that, and I had kind of after I designed Viticulture and released it, I set it aside for a while. I hadn't thought about it for a while. And during that drive, we were like, you know, we had these four hours together in the car. Let's just chat about it. Let's talk about what, what uh, if we could expand this game, what it would look like. And we threw out a ton of ideas. Some of those ideas ended up in the expansion. Others just didn't end up working at all. Um, but it really started with that conversation, that car ride about how could we, what can we do with this? What can, can we make it uh, bigger? Can we expand certain elements? Can we add more stuff? Can we? And that's why the first expansion, Tuscany, which was on Kickstarter, had like, 11 or 12 expansions in it because we just had all these ideas and we ended up saying, okay, let's just try to fund all of them and see which, you know, well, we kind of had an idea of which ones were, were great and which ones were just good, but the, the, there was a mix of the of two of the two elements in there. Right. Um, yeah. So that grew into Euphoria, right? Yeah. You, well, Euphoria was in the, we had funded Euphoria by that point. So, um, Basically, after I designed Viticulture, I knew I still loved worker placement, and I wanted to play around more in that area of uh, of game design. Um, but I wanted it to make, I wanted to explore the the idea that in worker placement games, you always you're placing these workers on the board, but they never say no. Like right. you, you don't tell a worker to give a vineyard tour in, in Viticulture, and the worker says, "No, I'm not really feeling that." And so I thought, okay, I could either make a game that does that, where the vidicul- where the workers actually do um, act like human beings. Or I could pick a theme where that makes sense in that realm, where the workers don't talk back to you. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I love dystopian fiction. That's the, a perfect theme for this, because in a dystopian world, workers don't often question their overlords. They just blindly and ignorantly do what they're told. And so I had a lot of fun exploring that theme with the workers and workers having knowledge and finding out too much or too, uh, learning more about the world that they're in. Yeah. So you kind of did something from Viticulture indirectly. Okay. Now, I, I am kind of intrigued. So Euphoria was the first Stonemeyer game that I discovered. I absolutely fell in love with it. It was, uh, I mean, I, I to this day, it's still one of the games that regularly hits the table for me. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Through the years, right, There was it, it, it came out, uh, it seemed to be very popular from what I've seen. Is that the, I mean... Did it did it hit the success you were looking for from a company standpoint? Um, I mean, just to clarify, is this Viticulture or Euphoria? Uh, Euphoria, Euphoria, this is Euphoria. Yeah, yeah. You, um, 
it, it certainly is not. It's not even. I think in our top three. It's, mm, no, it's not okay. in our top three. So I, I think. Uh, well, I was going to say that's tough these days, right? <laughs> yes. It, well, yeah. We have because we have two huge hits, right? We have Scythe and Wingspan, which are huge. Right. Um, Viticulture has become an evergreen game. We print uh, a decent number of Viticulture every year, and they 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 do very well. Uh, Euphoria. After, I thought it would be bigger than it was because the original Kickstarter was so big for its time. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think it's a good game. The one big problem I think with Viticulture is that it is a little hard to teach because you have all these interconnected systems. So even I struggle a little yeah. bit to teach, to teach euphoria in a really effective way. Um, where like Viticulture is more linear in the way that you teach it. Uh, so I, I definitely learned as a designer something from, from that. And I think that's a reason why Euphoria hasn't hit as many tables as some of these other games that are a little bit easier to teach. Because Okay, that makes sense. Um, I, I would agree. The uh, Euphoria, it's almost hard. Um, like One of the things I've seen in, in Viticulture, I also saw it in Scythe, is you can, and very much so in Tapestry, you can say, let's just sit down and play the first turn. Like regardless of what you do in your first turn, you're not going to be so drastically behind that you exactly. can't catch up. Euphoria, yeah. there are things you can do early that really give you a lead if nobody gets in your way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, um, but I was surprised that there was no talk of an expansion for for a long time. And then when the expansion came out, it was more of a um, either or, right? It was a replacement type of expansion. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it went through a long design and development process. For a long time, it was much more. It was a, it was a much more robust expansion, but it didn't play test well at all. Um, I was more of a developer on it. I was, I'm not the designer of the expansion, uh, but the, the team working on it, mm -hmm. who normally designs the solo versions of our games, they were working on this expansion. And it just... It just they they put some really cool ideas out there, and it just did not hit home with with human playtesters. So, we we scrapped it, and we just said, okay, the things that are working here are the 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 more recruit cards, more markets, or different recruit cards, different markets. They seem to work well. Let's make the expansion focus on that, as well as some things that. Uh, tweak and fix some things in the core game. Some that, of the house rules, yeah. Yeah, some of the house rules, exactly. Yeah. Now, and this is just my my lack of knowledge. Have you had Autonoma in all of the games from the beginning of designing your games, or is that something that was added in later? Because I know you mentioned you have, you know, a different team that designed your solo games. Yeah, yeah. I actually, when I entered the, the industry as an adult in, in 2012 with Viticulture, I had no idea that people were playing games solo. Um, and even then, I think there's maybe a small but passionate group, and that group is those people have grown quite a bit since then. And a guy named Morton, who now works for us part time and runs Team uh, Altama Factory, he was the one that introduced me to this idea and this community. And he ended up when I uh, so he didn't do anything for Viticulture or Euphoria related to Altama. And then when I was preparing to put together the uh, the Viticulture Tuscany campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I said, you know, Morton, I want to give this a try. Why don't you design a solo version for Tuscany? We'll put it in Tuscany and people can use it. And that's when we started putting it in pretty much all games after that because it was so well received. Uh, I think it, a few of his Altama games are on the up at the top of like the, the best solo versions of games um, of any game. So with oh, Viticulture wow. inside. Yeah. So I've kind of let him run with that since then. But the only game I think between two castles is one that he couldn't do it for. Couldn't figure that one out. I, and I can I can understand that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. I, I, and I will say, I mean, 
now it's almost the people I know who talk about Stonemaier Games. It's it's a given that there will be autonomy in the game. There'll be a solo play right. in the game now. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I and, love putting that one to one to five players or one to six players on the box. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what's the uh, there was that game recently that was uh, zero to zero to two or zero oh, to right. three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, so I mean I, that pretty much brought you into after Euphoria. Uh, Scythe was before Between Two Cities, right? Scythe was actually right after because Between Two Cities okay. was our first. Uh, delve into having a game that I didn't design that we would publish. So that, that was, uh, from, from Ben and, and Matthew, two designers who've been working on some other games. And they, I, I love that mechanism of having, uh, working with two neighbors, but in a competitive game where only one player can win. Right. Well, yeah. and even Scythe started to take a lot more external influence using Jacob's art, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I discovered, uh, Jacob's art in, it was either the summer of 2014 or 2015. I think 2014. It was 2014. And I just fell in love with it and wanted to design a game in that world. And so that was more of a, a lot more of a collaborative process than some of the previous games. Although I had worked with it. I mean, Alan is my co-founder. Mm-hmm. He, he's on the box of several games, but he's more like a lead playtester developer type where he's giving a great, a lot of great advice throughout the design process. Um, so I had collaborated before, but with Jakob, it was definitely on a whole new level where Jakob was actively building this amazing world. And I was trying to make sure the game fit into this world as well as it could. Now, when did you, when did you transition from working, working another job full time to this kind of Stonemaier games being your real job? Yeah, it was, it was a two part transition. Um, I, I had a 40 hour a week, a full time job, um, at a local university here and, uh, here in St. Louis and uh, after the Euphoria campaign, the Euphoria campaign raised about $300,000, which is a lot of money. It felt like a lot of money, but I knew that I didn't actually really have that money yet because I had to pay for the production of the game and pay for shipping and all that. Right. Um, but I needed more time at that point. At that point, I was working easily 40 hours on Stonemaier Game stuff and 40 hours at my, day, at my day job. So I asked my boss if I could work one fewer day a week and get paid 20% less um, at my full-time job. So that was enough. Of, I could make that work in terms of my budget. And then uh, some other things lined up in terms of other sales and other things that were happening at the company. And so around five months later in December, actually coming up right on the anniversary of it now, uh, December of 2013, um, after Euphoria was shipping to backers, that's when um, I decided to to go full time. So it's been six six years that I've been full time working for the company. As the, I, the only full time employee here. I, I gotta say, I I have a couple of other friends who own small companies right now, and mm-hmm. the the whole idea, like they they ran Kickstarters as well, but they they waited a couple years after their Kickstarters were out there before they had built yeah. up enough sales to go, you know, to, to go full time. I, that's gotta be a hairy experience to, uh, you know, nerve wracking to be looking at, oh, okay, I'm shipping my games. Is this going to be enough to pay my bills <laughs> for the next year? It is precarious. Yeah. And I, I admire your friends for waiting. I think the more patient you can be on that, the better. I kind of, I, I had been pretty good at saving money up until that point for personal funds. Um, and so I, I kind of looked at my savings and said, okay, I have a year uh, of savings to give this a try. 
I'll give t- in 2014, this will be my, my attempt to make this work. And if it doesn't, I'll just go back. I'll take what I learned, take my new experiences, and I'll find another full-time job at another company. Um, that isn't what ha- ended up happening, but I, I, you know, I had that a little bit of money to, to, to give it a try. Right, that cushion. So yeah. let me ask you this, and this is I, – I got to imagine this is a tough, uh, a tough question to answer because you come across as, a, and I think genuinely, uh, more humble than sort of loud and loud and out there. But mm-hmm. at, at what point did you realize you had made it? Like Stonemaier Games was was a thing. These games that you were putting out were had a following, and you had you, you know you made it. You it was really a real thing. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, sometimes I, I <laughs> it's hard to answer because, uh, you know, it's it's a this is my what I do every day. This is my passion. This is my my love, and I, I feel a lot of support from our fans. Um, at the same time, I my company is much smaller than other companies, so I don't always feel like I have made it. Hmm, okay. um, at the same time, I don't want to be falsely humble because I my company has done very well, and so I. I I'm happy with what I've helped build. Um, and so in, uh, compared to maybe a new creator, I think they may look at my company and say, okay, they have made it. And I want to acknowledge it. I think that is true in, to a certain extent. I think maybe one of the, the, like, the little signs that I saw fairly early in the process is the number of people who um, uh, were volunteering to do things for my company, complete strangers that I met mostly through Kickstarter early on who were asking if they could proofread, if they could play test, if they could, um, they were answering questions in, in forums and things like that. And once I saw that happening on like a regular basis, I was like, wow, like people are feeling the same love for my company that, that I do. And, uh, that, and they're complete strangers. That to me felt uh, some semblance of having made it, that, that people felt that same way and were actually acting on it. I got to say that's one of the that's one of the things I find so amazing and and welcoming about yeah. being a gamer and being in the game industry because I work you know I work for an IT company as a whole and we do a lot with open source and um, like we have entire divisions built around trying trying to pull in that type of support from the open source community or from developer communities where you know kind of game companies because it's people's passion. And yeah. their hobby, you just you just get that, <laughs> right? Right. right. <laughs> if you if you do the right thing, you get this incredible groundswell of support, uh, and also critique. I mean, you know, everybody loves to hate on uh, pretty much everything on the internet these days. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, that's the curse of growing bigger and, and expanding. That you do have more uh, more people who choose either justifiably or sometimes unjustifiably just to. Uh, hate on it. So yeah. I've, I've had to adjust and learn to that too and, and try to figure out, okay, what's what's the valid cri- criticism here? Who are the, the ones who are passionate and actually want to see things done better? And who's just maybe feeling something else that I can't even understand and their, their voice and their opinions. Yeah. A little bit of both. Well, that's, uh, you, you've had some great articles recently, you know, uh, damned if I do, damned if I don't and, and things like that. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, <laughs> It, it can get it can get to be a, a tough road to uh, to drive down, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, a little bit. So, um, I, Scythe when Scythe came out, Scythe uh, pretty much blew up, right? I mean, that's it. It, it the Kickstarter was was crazy and big at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. The game since then has just had this incredible momentum to it. Um, I, I mean, what was it like from the inside to to navigate through that? 
it was overwhelming, but usually in very good ways. Uh, like the reception to the original Kickstarter was immediately overwhelming and awesome, um, but it was also difficult to navigate because I was it was just uh, an order of magnitude so much higher than other campaigns that I had run. Like uh, as a point of comparison, the Viticulture Tuscany Viticulture campaign or campaign Kickstarter campaign raised four hundred fifty thousand dollars in about twenty five days, which is awesome. That's a great campaign. Scythe raised $650,000 in the first day of the campaign. And I know we see that all the time now, but back then that was very new and very different and very surprising to me. Um, and then, like you said, Scythe has gone on to, to uh, it, from my perspective, it, to bring joy to a lot of people, um, yeah. which is my goal. And I, I am elated that I've been able to reach so many people through that game. Um and that has been it's it's helped other companies even it's helped Jakob make a career out of out of his art it's helped um, companies like Meeple Source make little special tokens for it and that they they sell to, to thousands of people and that's a big part of their business so I, I love that it's kind of spurred all, spurred all these little businesses off to the side that I'm not directly involved with uh, yeah it's been it's been really cool seeing how how Scythe has grown now what so. At this point, you had you had three games that you rolled out, plus some expansions that you had you had pretty much you were the guy, right? Yeah. It was your designs, your ideas. What what possessed you? I'll say it that way to uh, then turn around and kind of go outside, pick up a, a couple of other you know partner with some other people, and just become the producer, the publisher, and let them design uh, additional games between two cities being. Um, you know, one of the, the, the first one, right? Yeah, Between Two Cities was first, and then it has expanded to Between Two Castles, My Little Scythe, um, and uh, Wingspan, uh, and some upcoming, upcoming games as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big part of it, it's kind of two parts, really. One was I, I was starting to realize that as much as I wanted to grow as a designer, um, I have weaknesses as a designer, some of which I hope to address by giving myself new challenges as a game designer, but also some I'm just not as good at certain designs as I am at others, I think, and other designers are. And so I thought, okay, rather than limit my company to my capabilities, why not look outside to other designers? And the other part is um, I have, as the company grew and as I was the full-time employee running the company, my design time became much, much less uh, than in the past. And so I also didn't want to limit the company's growth simply because I didn't have time to design games anymore. So I wanted to have that extra option of, uh, of publishing games from other designers that I still spent a lot of time on. I still spend a lot of time on them as a developer, but just not as a designer. Now, we tend to hear two stories, we, we being the public, tend to hear two stories coming out of the game industry, right? There's there's the story of the group of designers that just sort of designs their games, and sometimes they pull people in and that group grows. And then we mm-hmm. also hear the, um, I think Bonacore is, is probably the, the most loquacious about this, about <laughs> being consistently pitched new games, yeah. right? These these designers outside, because everybody has a game in them, uh, doing this constant pitch. Right. How did that play out for you? Was it something you went looking for, or were you, like, it, was there a tipping point where you were getting regular pitches and saw something you liked and said, let's go with this? At first, it was pretty informal. Yeah, people were reaching out to us and saying, we, we, we have a game, or I have a game, and I want to give it, give it a shot. Um, and so, 
pretty quickly, I um, formalized the process so that there would be a formal set of filters that people would go through before we would get the game to the table. Because what happened early on there is that someone would send their they would send an idea to me, and I would be like, "Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, send me send me the prototype." And then I would spend a lot of time like putting together the prototype because they were sending sometimes digital files oh, where wow. they were. And or maybe they were sending the prototype, but then I had to like learn the rules, and sometimes the rules weren't, or the rules were almost never perfectly clear. So I had to spend a lot of time like getting to know this game that I didn't enjoy in the end, and we didn't end up doing anything with. So we had to really formalize and add filters to protect our time a little bit. Um, and now the process is very formalized, and it goes through my business partner Alan, and only gets to me if uh, if he does get to that point where he's like, okay, they have they this person is good to communicate with. They have a rulebook that's put together. The game looks interesting. It fits our requirements. Uh, send us a prototype, and we'll we'll give it a try. Nice, nice. Now, and so you you mentioned Alan a couple of times. I got to ask: is is Alan the one that finally went? Okay, Jamie, listen, you can. You can keep talking about Kickstarter on your on your blog, but um, <laughs> let, let's go ahead and start doing our own games with no Kickstarter here. He was a part of the conversation, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I, I was the one that originally presented that idea because um, it stemmed from one of the things that stemmed from Scythe. I mentioned Scythe being a little overwhelming at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, was during the Scythe fulfillment process, I realized how uh, precarious. Um, it, uh, a fulfillment process could be, and it still is. Like I still do pre-orders now, so I'm still shipping games worldwide. But with Kickstarter in particular, I was uh, hesitant to go back to that after I experienced what I experienced with with uh, with Scythe um, during the fulfillment process. So I, I mentioned that idea to Alan and and one other person who's involved in the company, and I said, you know, what if we just try not to use Kickstarter anymore? I love the platform. I still want to write about it. I want to learn from it as an outsider, as a backer. But uh, but I. I'd like to move away from Usenet. What do you guys think? And we kind of came to an agreement there that we would uh, not plan on using Kickstarter in the future. And we've stuck with that over the last four years. Now, this is something I haven't, maybe I've missed it. I haven't seen you really talk about. But do you think that 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 sort of progression, right? Uh, Launch your first game, get it out there on Kickstarter in the early days, go through the Kickstarter process, and then step back still do the pre-orders, which gives you that, you know, and we'll talk about it in a bit, right? It gives you the hype. It gives you um, the the measure of how many you're going to be able to, how many copies of a game you'll be able to sell to begin with. So the good parts of Kickstarter without it being actual Kickstarter. Do you think that's a progression that you can, I, I guess... Is that the progression you would recommend to most companies to look towards, or is that more of a personal thing that you've just decided that's what you're doing, and you know, uh, you know, good on whatever direction other people pick? I would say, for the most part, it is a personal decision. The one thing I would say to other creators who might be listening to this is, um, you don't need anyone's permission to make something awesome, and I think Kickstarter started to feel a little bit that way to me. That uh, that I was asking the permission of of many people to make something that I already was pretty sure was was great. I mean, and not just based on my own impression, but based on playtesting and uh, and uh, the number of people who see the game before we we make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, rather than wait for that permission and add a six to eight month lag between announcing a game and actually making it and shipping it, I just cut out that middle part and just went ahead and made the game. 
and told people about it when it arrived in a warehouse. And that's when we run our pre-orders. Now, we, we've already received the game, and we say, you know, we have this new product, this new game, this new expansion. Um, if you want it, it's on our website right now. We'll ship it to you in a week or two. Now you you have had some interesting bumps recently, and I will say uh, the <laughs> sure. uh, doesn't always work out. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> right. but true. but you're um, I, I'm really intrigued, especially from the business standpoint. You you seem to be capturing. I, I would almost describe it as you're you're playing with lightning in a bottle, and mm-hmm. while you're getting zapped here and there, you're you're actually putting yourself out there trying to engineer or or kind of experiment with and play with how do you what looks like how do you create that kickstarter momentum right i mean kickstarter brings great visibility great momentum great hype like how do you create that without being part of that kickstarter system right and if tapestry is i mean wingspan was was one thing and and i read all the blog posts about how surprising that was but if tapestry is any uh any example, you're certainly honing in on a, a solid strategy. What goes into, you know, what are the knobs you're turning? What are the toys you're playing with there? You know, what are you learning day to day that uh, that you find interesting and others might? Well, part of it is that that difference in time that I mentioned. That uh, with Kickstarter, you're right, you get all that buzz and that excitement during the campaign, but then you have to somehow recapture it six months, eight months, maybe 12 months later when it comes out. And that is a lot more difficult for any game. Um, and so th- I try to come, that's what I've been trying to do. I've tried to combine the two so that I get to announce this thing and be really excited about it and share what all the components are day to day. You know, I'll, I'll announce new things that are part of the game that I've already made. They're already in the game, but I, I reveal them day to day to kind of hook people, get them excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then we get to ship it so much while they're still excited about it. Um, and the gaming community can be a bit fickle with that. Like we, with Tapestry, we sold so many pre-orders that it took, instead of taking a week or two to, to fulfill, it took, uh, for some backers, it took a week, but some, it took four weeks. And I, I was seeing some posts on social media from people saying, uh, you know, I, I've waited three weeks to get my game. I'm not really excited about it anymore. So, Three three weeks is all I have now to work yeah, with. Sometimes that's, that's but, a little crazy. I, I would say take yeah. that email and toss that one aside. <laughs> I, it's, it's an outlier. It's an outlier. But I, it's re- reminding me of how how that uh, how excitement can work, how passion and, and buzz can work. Um, yeah, I will yeah, say but, this: yeah. we uh, Tapestry was interesting for me. Um, I jumped in, did the did the pre order, and I think mine showed up within two days. Oh, wow. And I was I was floored. Um, in fact, the the FedEx I was I was so frustrated. I'm like, they keep saying the game's going to show up today, and I'm working from home, and I can't find you. Know, I'm not seeing it. Nobody's coming to the door, and I go online, and it's like it's been delivered. And mm-hmm. the FedEx people never came to the door. They just dropped it at my garage. Oh no! So yeah, not a not <laughs> a bad thing. But immediately after that, there were. Two other locals in in a couple of uh, I'm in a couple of gaming groups and they were both just just I mean super excited they had jumped in maybe five ten minutes after I'd done my pre order they had mm-hmm. did their pre orders and of course I got mine um, what four days before one of the guys and a week before the other so <laughs> yeah. I'm taking pictures the whole time going I don't understand <laughs> why you guys aren't playing <laughs> but uh, but yeah it was it was kind of interesting to see that that arc. Now, I am deeply intrigued. This is the first time I've ever 
scene and and again genuinely maybe I missed it but I think this may be the first time anybody's embargoed reviews like the opinion of is this a good or a bad game will you enjoy it right you you went out and said go ahead and teach the game after this date but you can't give your opinion on it until it goes <laughs> up for order Oh, I've actually done it. I've done it on previous games, but it just didn't have the same level of attention um, oh, okay. as Tapestry. Um, but yeah, the, I, I, I think it was actually I learned from that on Charterstone because uh, I didn't have an embargo. Um, I didn't even know that was really an option that I could tell reviewers to do, advanced copy reviewers. But um, I didn't have one, and I found that reviewers were rushing to like be the first to get one out there, to get the first review out there. So mm-hmm. they're like rushing through this game to, to have the first opinion, uh, which is fine. That's prerog- their prerogative to get, that, to get that first review. But it also meant, um, par- partially, I don't think that's great for people who are who are wanting to hear from those reviews that a reviewer has rushed through it. Um, and part of it is I don't want to put that pressure on reviewers. I don't want them to. to have them feel in any way that they're competing against other reviewers in a very short amount of time. And so I, since I, it's been multiple games now at this point, just really got the attention with tapestry. I, I, uh, I gave them a, a date and I said, okay, this is the day we can start talking about it. I think it got the most attention for tapestry because that date coincided with the, um, the pre-order date, uh, so and, I, I guess yeah. I must have missed that. So with Charterstone and Wingspan, do you also separated the – you can teach people how to play and show the videos, but you're, you can't give an actual review? I definitely did it with Wingspan. Okay. Um, but it was – for that one, it was it was well before the pre-order date. I'd give them an, an embargo. Um, but, yeah, I, I did it with Wingspan too. I think maybe the thing that I messed up with Tapestry is that I I let that coincide with the pre-order date. So <laughs> right. That wasn't good for the customers. It made them feel really rushed. The intent was that they could get opinions and immediately click through and buy the game if they liked those opinions. Um, but I think uh, some people perceived it as that I was hiding something, even though I have no idea what those reviewers were going to say about it. And I posted them all. I, I actually still haven't watched it. There might be reviewers who really hated on Tapestry and whose videos I put on our website because – I respect their opinions, and I, I want people to know that the game isn't for everybody. Right. Now, could you tell how many people bought the – with with the reviews coinciding, could mm-hmm. you tell how many people picked up the game before watching your review? Like, is there any – did you have a big burst as soon as the pre-orders went live or anything along those lines? Uh, it's hard to tell how many people watch the reviews and then pre-order the game. It's based on tapestry sales. They happen so quickly and, and – um, there were so many sales very right. quickly that uh, I suspect that most people were pre-ordering it and then watching a review, if at all. So that my whole theory there kind of went out the window. But that's <laughs> the fun of this. I get to try something like that and then try something different the next time I do a pre-order, well, which I do it, for the Wingspan expansion. Yeah, in the in the two, well, three, I, I'm guessing the Wingpan, Wingspan expansion has done very well. But Wingspan and Tapestry both brought, I, I mean, just incredible amounts of hype to games getting released. Um, I, 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 I can't even imagine from your side, like how do you manage, how do you manage those, that type of expectation? Cause then you have to live up to it right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or ride out the disappointment. If it, if a game doesn't li- I mean, how do you manage that level of hype? Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, just I, just hold I, on and, and hope yeah. for the best, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the best I can do is design and publish the best games that I can um, and, and convey them accurately. Uh, convey what they are, express what they are accurately to people so they can both in a, a, a objective way when I talk about the game and a subjective way when I share reviewers so people can make a decision about the game and decide if it's for them or not. Uh, someone, Someone's excitement about the game is something that I can't really control. So if someone has expectations that I don't I, I guess I that I, it's one of those things that I don't have a lot of control over and I don't really want to control. So I, my only hope is that when I put out information about a game that I am being accurate about it so someone knows that, uh, that uh, what the game that they're getting is the game that I told that they'd be getting. Right. Uh, that's, that sounds incredibly healthy, so let me say that because I think not enough people say that. Right? <laughs> it's, um, you know, I think there's a tendency to, you know, oh, my God, I have to somehow live up to this or top Ooh. this with my next, uh, my next endeavor. So, um, okay. So big question here, and this goes to tapestry and Charterstone. Okay. Um, a little bit with Scythe, but really with the rise of Fenris expansion. So Mm -hmm. I, I've noticed as a fan that there's a couple of times that you've, it's almost like you've taken an idea that's become an accepted idea in gaming and, I, I almost wonder, do you actively look at trying to come at that sort of sideways or from an alternate perspective, or is that just sort of how your brain works as a, as a designer? And, and I'll clarify a little bit. So Charterstone was one of the first legacy games that right from the outset, the designer being you know you, came out and said, not only is this going to be legacy, but I want people to be able to continue to play it afterwards not just have something they toss in the trash um and we're going to give you you know i mean that the the refill kits came out right about the same time the gloomhaven refill kits started to be Mm -hmm. popular um scythe rise of fenris right this Mm -hmm. was a yeah it's legacy i'm gonna give you boxes but it's not really legacy and everything's resettable and you can play this multiple times um, yeah, it's, it's a campaign. It's a campaign. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then in Tapestry, you really took the idea of here's a civilization game, but we're, we're going to play this in a quarter of the time of a typical civilization game and actually make it accessible. And who's ever heard of a civilization game with a small rule book, never mind a four-page rule book? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I, yeah. that's sort of what I mean by coming at these, uh, these sort of generally accepted concepts sideways. Yeah. I, I think you've summed it up very well. I, I, I do try to do that. I, I try to... I want to put something out there that's at least a little bit innovative and a little bit unique. And I play a lot of games from other designers and other publishers. I, I love playing games, and I learn every time I play them. And a lot of them inspire me. Uh, the, the Rob Davio's legacy system was a huge inspiration for me. I wanted to come at it with my own angle. Um, campaign games have been have been fascinating to me. But like you mentioned with The Rise of Fenris, I wanted to be able to tell a story and tell a narrative and have players have an impact over that. But I also wanted them to be able to, to reset it. Um, and with, uh, with Tapestry, there are some amazing civilization games out there, um, many of which I, I really, really love. But most of them, um, they're, they're, they're pretty, like you said, they can be pretty long. Um, and m- many of them follow real-world history. They, they, you, you're, they kind of give you an opportunity to, to 
tell real world history with your own little angles here and there. And I wanted to go at that from a different way. I wanted players to be able to tell their own story and tell their, tell their own histories, make their own histories. So yeah, I'm, I'm always paying attention to these other games and playing them and learning from them and trying to, like you said, come at it at a, at a different angle. Yeah. Nice. So what type of mix as we look into the future, right? I, I know you have um, in your newsletter you send out, you're always talking about here's what's coming up over the next X amount of time. Here's what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. What's the mix going forward of Jamie design games versus uh, outside design games that fit the fit the portfolio? It's, so our our goal is to publish two new games a year at most. Sometimes it'll be one, sometimes it'll be two. Uh, and typically I think that'll mean that uh, out of every two years, one or two of those games will be games designed by me, maybe sometimes co-designed by me, and the other two will be from other designers. And look, we I pretty much planned through 2021 at this point, and that is the, the pattern. Uh, I have one co-design game, one game that I'm working on alone, and then two games from other designers that'll come out during that time. Nice, nice. And uh, if you were to describe what type of game is the classic or fits the Stonemaier mold, what are those words right from the right from the you know mouth of the owner? A classic Stonemaier game is, uh, I would say, in general, the thing that we aim for is a one to five or one to six player Euro style game with a with a heavy dose of theme um, that plays in forty five to ninety minutes. Obviously, not all, all of our games fit that mold, but that is generally what we add to what, what we aim for. And uh, we generally aim for it to be an event game. We don't really publish fillers. So an event game would be like the, the centerpiece of a game night, the, the game that, that you bring to the table that you're really excited to play. It's the main game you play. It's not the fillers. Nice. And it's, uh, but it's also not something that you need to set aside a game day for. It's, it can fit into a two- or three-hour game night. That, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. So now let me kind of turn things over to you. What – um. You've been at this quite a while. What is it that you you would want to share, or what is it you think doesn't get recognized enough that you would point out to a uh, you know to somebody new with Stonemeyer Games? Oh, that's a good question. And uh, really, I'm glad you asked that because I, I I am so entrenched in the community of people who know our games that uh, that sometimes I forget that someone might be listening to this and, and hearing about our games for the first time. Um, if you are, if that is you, I, I hope that um, the existing Stonemaier Games collection and community doesn't intimidate you from giving it a try. And if you do have, if you do want to be a part of that community, if you want to try one of our games, um, you are welcome. Um, that's a big part of my company. I want, I, it, it is a very inclusive company where I want anyone to feel welcome, unless they're the type of person that doesn't make other people feel welcome, and then you're a little bit less welcome. But <laughs> we can we can work with that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. I just want to let people know that they're they're welcome to 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 be a part of some of our games. Yeah. Uh, see, so now you, now you, now you're kicking me out. I had to uh, I had to ban friends of mine. Uh-huh. So no, I it was um, <laughs> actually amusingly. So I had picked up a huge fan of Scythe just uh, like through the Kickstarter all the way on, and uh-huh. uh, when Rise of Fenris came out, I, I ran out to buy it, and then due to scheduling, it was probably two months before I got a chance to actually get it to the table. 
And uh, uh-huh. the I think the funniest story locally has been um, so a couple of my buddies came over. It's over a holiday weekend. And, you know, they were like, well, is there anything you want to play? I'm like, I have been dying to get Rise of Fenris out. And, you know, starting at noon, all three of us committed. We were going to play the entire campaign. We were just going to do it, sit down. If it was over the night, I had, you know, uh, Death Wish coffee, super caffeinated. (laughs) We were good to go. Uh And uh, we get far enough in where I'm kind of sure that this mission is going to unlock a box. And I'm super excited because it's it's my game and I want to get it. And... uh, one of my other buddies unlocks the first box and gets the uh, gets the first expansion uh, faction, and I'm uh-huh. like, yeah, that's okay. I'm looking in there. There's another box. That's another faction. I'm, I'm good to go. I'll just get the second one. Okay. And uh, we get all the way in, and I'm convinced that this is the mission that's going to unlock it. And I do the mission, and it happens to be the mission right before the one that unlocks oh, yeah. the uh, the Marauders. And uh, and of course, if you score highest on the objectives on that one it's actually a negative in the campaign (laughs) and then we roll into the next game and i'm like okay well if it wasn't that one it's got to be this one and my other buddy rolls in kills the big robot and unlocks the second faction oh no and i'm sitting there so of course they start at this point at like you know 2 a.m with oh did you want to play with your toys (laughs) Worse, <laughs> and I'm like, I hate you both. I hate you. I, I hate you. <laughs> so, so that has carried on for months now. With the, uh, <laughs> yeah, but see, I love that it created that memorable moment for you. Multiple memorable. Oh moments. yeah, that's, what, that's oh, yeah. What, exactly what I was aiming for. No, the campaign yeah. actually is is fantastic, and it really did. Like we, uh, it, it, it was a great evening. That still brings up stories oh, uh, past that. So that's awesome. Well, and Bill, I wanted to give credit to you here before we, we close out that uh, your viewers may not know this because I told you this privately, but Bill sent me a very nice invitation to the convention that you're involved with, the Spring Fling. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to give you credit for um, reaching out in such a, uh, a detailed and personable way and personal way. I, I, I get, I've gotten you know a number of those types of invitations over the years, and some are very generic. Like, I don't even know if they are targeting me or just anyone in general. And some are very vague. Like, I don't know anything about it when they send me. But you had the one of the best invitations I've ever received. And so I just wanted to I'd say thank, thank you. you for that. And, and I hope to someday go to the Spring Flame because if, if you have those invitations with such care, then the convention itself must must be so caringly and, and lovingly um, put on. So thank you for that. And I, I, yeah, that's it a, it's humbling. Time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I we try to... I, I, I give a lot of credit to the staff of the Spring Fling. I, uh, although amusingly, I, my wife and I were talking about this actually this weekend, and uh, we were sort of planning out. Uh, you know, she's like, "What are your plans? What are we going to do?" And I have mm-hmm. a couple of new staff this year, and uh, I was like, "Well, my plan is, we need to do a meeting. Probably have everybody out to the house or, or out to the site, and I want to sit everybody down." She's like, "Well, how are you going to explain what it's like to work with you?" It's like, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm going to turn to the guys that have helped me for two years and be like, <laughs> how would you brief everybody else? <laughs> so, so, but, uh, but yeah, we, we do our best. It's, it's been growing and I'm excited for the next couple of years and we are going to get you out as yeah. uh, as one of our VIPs. One of these years, I get you out of St. Louis. We'll get you out to the East coast. So, <laughs> so, but uh, I look, yeah, I look forward to it someday. Yeah, yeah. but thank you very much for that. And uh, yeah. and I, 
I I can say nothing but compliments. It's uh, speaking with you has been a pleasure, and uh, I I am an absolute addicted fan of your games. I think the the only ones that I have played and not that didn't really click for me were between two cities and between two castles. Oh, the between so, two games. Yeah, okay. between two <laughs> cities was was, and this is where I find interesting. I was never a fan of of Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Uh, okay. So that would do it. Like yeah. I played Between Two Cities and it, it was my least favorite of all the Stonemeyer games. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah, I would play it again, but not great. And then we jumped in and we put in a game I didn't enjoy. And I'm like, ooh, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was good to try. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I appreciate you giving it a try. But, but yeah. I'm not sure there's much you could release at this point that I wouldn't at least try. Um, and, and I say that, uh, very genuinely and, in, in you know, uh, as a positive, I, uh, everything I've put on the table, I have, I have enjoyed a great deal. And, uh, look, even when you say euphoria was one of the ones that, uh, you know, was sort of tough to work on, it, it is probably up there with, uh, played as much in our local groups as, as any of the others. Well, that's awesome. I, so, that's really cool. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So, well, listen. Thank you very much. I will uh, return you to your regularly scheduled Sunday, and okay. uh, and yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Have a great Sunday, Bill. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. I am back for a very short time just to say thank you for listening to the Gamers Lounge. Uh, Again, this is episode 160. I hope you enjoyed yourself. You can find us at gamerslounge.coder.net. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us on Google Play. You can find uh, us on Facebook uh, at the Gamers Lounge. No, at Gamers Lounge. Uh, No, the. Uh, It's the one with the sexy microphone. And uh, if you would like to get a hold of me or leave comments, uh, one, you can always leave a comment out on iTunes. That is hugely appreciated. It helps, you know, another listener find us and we can get to two the listeners. Uh, in addition to that, uh, please, you know, send email. So you can always get a hold of me uh, either on the comments on the Facebook page or at bill at gamerslounge.coder.net. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.